You're listening to The Mix on Civ Mix, hosted by Liz Benjamin and Joe Bonilla. Welcome back to The Mix, everyone. This is Joe Bonilla, one of your co-hosts here for The Mix for the week of June 15th, 2020. And it was, of course, as it has always been since we started this show, an eventful week here in not just the capital region, but also in New York State. Last week, the legislature took up many of the reforms in criminal justice that advocates have been calling for, especially in the wake of the killing of George Floyd. There have been a lot of local reactions. And we felt that, you know, we had talked to District Attorney David Soares and Albany Police Chief Eric Hawkins last week that there are still uh, a number of issues, not just um, criminal justice issues, but also issues from COVID that have dominated the legislative atmosphere. And so Liz spoke to Shelley Hagan, who is the president and CEO of the Upper Hudson Planned Parenthood organization, about what Planned Parenthood is doing during these times, um, especially as a, as a health care provider. I spoke with Liz Moran, who is the Environmental Policy Director for NYPERG, about the issues regarding the environment, because just because there's a pandemic doesn't mean environmental concerns and issues have taken a back step. So we spoke with both Shelley and Liz, and you'll be listening to that right now. Without further ado, here's Liz Benjamin. Shelley Hagan, it is great to have you here in the mix. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. I have to say, I'll say right up front, first of all, I'm not a reporter anymore, so I can have personal opinions. And um, I'm a supporter of Planned Parenthood, so it's great to have you. It's both uh, personally and professionally fulfilling. So I'm really, it's really, I'm pleased. And I think it's an important organization and you're doing really great work. And I'm curious to see uh, how you guys have been weathering the pandemic. Yeah, it has been a um, it has been a crazy uh, three four months. Um, so first, I'll start with the fact that we have obviously. I was just talking with some of my friends in the public health world. Like this is not over. So there's this weird sense in the world, like oh, we've turned a corner. And when it comes to like the actual communicable disease part of it, we haven't technically turned a corner. So we. Um, we've gotten through this far without having to close any health centers, without having um, reduction in force, without having um, any uh, reduction in health center hours. That being said, um, the first month, uh, March and into early April, were really difficult because I think a lot of people were afraid to do anything. Um, so we didn't. Uh, we we definitely have struggled financially because you know we get paid by insurance companies for the services we provide, and when you're not providing enough services, that's obviously uh, going to be a problem. But that. But then by the beginning of April, we launched telemedicine, and telemedicine mm. has just been absolutely transformative. And um, I don't know if you've ever had a telehealth visit, but like they're off. So let's talk, can we talk a little bit about that? First of all, I'm not sure that everybody knows. I mean, I did a little bit of reporting on this back in the day, but, and I was confused by it. Now, telemedicine is not a replacement necessarily. Like you can't get a, a throat culture from, you know, if you, from a telemedicine 
uh, visit or like, um, I don't know. I mean, you can't get, but, but how, why is it helpful from a provider point of view? I mean, I understand it, keep, it can keep people out of brick and mortar inst, uh, institutions, facilities, which mm -hmm. is good going back to your original point because it helps keep virus transmission points down. Mm -hmm. um, there's a bunch of reasons why it's it's a wonderful how how um, our folks think of it is it's a wonderful tool to have in your toolbox. Mm -hmm. It would not be great if it was your only tool because obviously uh, you can't get a Pap smear via telehealth. Um, right, but um, that would be something else if you could. Yeah, that, yeah, that would be a thing. You know, and who knows? Maybe they'll come up with an at-home Pap smear test kit. I don't know that the, there's never it. It never ceases to amaze me how far we come with recognizing that not everybody has a life that makes it easy for them to drop everything they do and go to the doctor in the middle right. of the day. Right. And you know, the system we have is not conducive to people who work, people who work um, low wage jobs that don't have access to sick time or, or flexibility. The healthcare system's not set up for that. The healthcare system has always had a very sort of elitist style. Like, like we're here between the hours of nine to five. We close for one hour at lunch, and you need to make your appointment in that set. And that, like, that just. And they're always running late. Like, it's just you know, unless you get the first appointment of the day, which I will, I will wait hours. I will admit to being the person who's like rather weeks, like tell me when you have the next opening smack at the moment when you open the doors and I will take that. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> um, I definitely am with you on that, but not everybody can do that. Not everybody can no. come in at eight o'clock in the morning. No. So our hours have always been, um, we, we, we stagger our hours so that we're open later. We have Saturday hours. We do all the things we can do to make sure that we're here for people when they need us. But not everybody, even still, there's a lot of people who can't necessarily drop everything and come in. So what telehealth does is it gives a person the opportunity to talk face-to-face -to, -face to a provider through the screen, you know, so they're obviously, you know, there's that limit. Um, but you'd be astonished at how much doctors are able to do simply by talking to patients and, and mm. looking at them. And so what we did early on when the, when there was um, a lot more pressure to keep people out of our health centers, not only to keep the waiting rooms down. So there weren't, you know, crowds of people in the waiting room, but also to protect our staff from not having more one-on-one -on -one experiences with people whose status we didn't know. So we reduced some of the visit types to mm -hmm. um, only telehealth. And what our providers found relatively quickly is that sometimes that works. And sometimes in the course of the conversation with the person on the other end of the screen, eh, you know, you really do need to come in. Like if they ask a certain number of questions and they eliminate certain, you know, problems that, that whatever someone's experiencing might be, and you get to a certain point, you go, well, you know, I think we actually need to see you. Um, also, we work in concert with local labs. So for certain things, um, you can go and get a, a lab test and not have to come into a clinic. And people enjoyed that. What huh. we're seeing now as we're um, through this a little more and it's more integrated into the work that we do every day, 
<clears throat> there's a lot of patients who just straight up prefer a telehealth visit. So I think the future for Planned Parenthood, I mean, right now, fully one third of the visits we're doing are telehealth. So Does that enable you to see more people? I mean, or a telehealth visit is just, it's the same half hour that you would allot or whatever it is, the time amount that you would allot to an in-person uh, visit, except, I mean, I guess you don't have to do the administrative piece. So maybe that's more time efficient. Well, that is a great question, Liz, because really it is the same, the same amount of time. So oh. if you had a telehealth visit with us, the first person you would see on the screen would be a nurse and they would go through the same intake process that they would do if you were live in the health center. And then when that process is done, they hand you over virtually to a um, nurse practitioner or a physician's assistant who completes the visit. So really the full amount of time that you're interacting is about the same. So, well, so that's also good for people to know because I think the main two things are probably the biggest barriers. One, you need access to a computer. I guess you could do it on your phone, but right, yeah. you, but but you need you a lot on the phone, yeah, to connectivity. And and we know if we've learned anything about uh, through this pandemic, and I think we've learned quite a bit. We've learned about the great disparities that exist, um, and they existed prior. But I think a lot of people had their eyes open to them, in terms of uh, you know between particularly people who are uh, in a socioeconomic uh, status that is, you know, they, they don't have a lot of money or they are a member of a minority community or people of color or what have you, that there is certainly a, a grand disparity when it comes to access to healthcare, public health outcomes, and, you know, the ability to, to get online. <laughs> and all of those things are barriers to effective telehealth. But also I think a person might be like, oh, well, but will I get the same service? Even if they could overcome all of those other things that are really significant, will they get the same level of care? So I would say first and foremost, yes, you would get the same level of care. But I think where you're going and it's where I've been, where some of my biggest concerns as we entered into this sort of telehealth space is there are a lot of people who are left out. Mm -hmm. And I think, like I say, telehealth is wonderful. It's a great tool. Um, I just caution us from people seeing it as some sort of silver bullet because it, it is not. There is, a, for us, we see teenage patients. Um, a telehealth visit requires a certain level of privacy. And one of the things here in New York, you're guaranteed access to reproductive health care as soon as you are of reproductive age. And so someone who needs to have a private conversation about their reproductive health care may not have access to that private space if they're a teenager and they're living in an apartment with their family. Right. Um, people who are experiencing domestic violence are not going to have the same ability to have a private conversation that may be that conversation that helps them make a decision to either move out or, or make a change in their lives if they're sitting in that same space having a non-private conversation. Um, people don't have access in rural communities. I mean, I have we have a board member who lives in, um, in uh, Berkshire County and she can barely even have a cell phone conversation because her right. connectivity is so bad right. in parts of Berkshire County. So 
you know, our rural communities also have enormous health disparities and those are not gonna be solved by telehealth. Um, what I think telehealth can do is free up physical space. So yes, we definitely will be able to see more people in the future because we don't need additional waiting room or uh, additional exam rooms we can have some of the visits will be happening telehealth so it frees up space for those visits on site um, but we have to continue to look for ways to bring health care to people who have been left out of the system for a long time i mean um, we've talked about in the past the astonishing uh, disparity in birth outcomes between african-american mothers and and white mothers and yeah. and those that's an extreme, like that is one that sort of smacks you in the face and is very extreme. But look at the rate of COVID deaths yep. and is double yep. that of white people. Yep. Um, that, that is, those, those are very extreme circumstances, but that is a reflection of the level of care people are getting across the board. So everything we can do to make our health centers a safe place, easy to access place for the black community to get the care that they need and that they deserve, um, we have to do it. Has there been, is, and I mean, I don't wanna say the word silver lining because to say that in the same sentence as pandemic is sort of obtuse, but has there been any benefit in so much as, you know, look, I, I, not to put too fine a point on it, Planned Parenthood is, is uh, often has a target on it and you're sort of, particularly in an election year, uh, which we're in, as some people tend to forget, but it's a presidential election. I do not forget that ever. No, you have <laughs> But I guess, I guess what I'm saying is like, this would be about the time when, you know, the Republicans would be unleashing on you. And instead, you're not the main focus of conversation. Is that a good thing? Um, I don't think that we're necessarily, Okay, so we're in New York State, and so there is a commitment to both access to reproductive health care and abortion that New York State has and will have that um, allows a certain amount of privilege for a Planned Parenthood running in the capital region. Right. That being said, there has there have been continuous ways in which Planned Parenthoods continue to be targeted around the country. Um, you know, the uh, the first wave of COVID when they shut down all what they called unnecessary or, uh, elective surgeries, Texas, Missouri, Ohio, Oklahoma, all took quick steps to make sure that abortion was seen as an elective surgery mm -hmm. so that they could essentially eliminate abortion in their state. Um, have though, abortion demands gone down as a result of the pandemic? We have not, we have not seen that. Our, our, um, our demand for all of our services seems to continue to be in about the same range as it was before the pandemic. Huh. But it's going to go up in places where those, where access was limited so severely. And, right. you know, our, our colleagues that run Planned Parenthoods in Texas are saying, you know, people are just making the decision that they're going to just have to carry a pregnancy that they cannot afford. They do not, they did not intend. They were not planning on doing um, because there's the, the, the barriers were just so great. So a lot of attacks on abortion happened because of the pandemic. 
Right. And I think too, this um, administration, the Trump-Pence administration um, never, never takes Planned Parenthood off, it never takes its eye off of Planned Parenthood. Mm-hmm. So any way in which they can uh, work to continue to erode Medicaid coverage, to uh, work to erode um, requirements for access to birth control um, under the Affordable Care Act, you know, all of those things are really focused on diminishing women's access and diminishing Planned Parenthood in any way they can. Do you, is there something, I mean, also, I guess I have to ask, I mean, at the state level, we are looking at significant cuts Um, at the federal level. I mean, the financial situation is just not good. You know, the Fed has decided to keep rates, interest rates in, in the same place, but they're making some really scary comments about unemployment levels and how long it's going to take to get people back to work. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, you know, it, but, but on the flip side, giving is up, interestingly, in some areas, because people have taken a look at all of the hurt and pain and need and been like, we should, we should give. So where are you guys financially? Um, Our supporters have definitely rallied. We, um, we started a emergency fund in April, no March. And um, we reached out to our donors and said, we really are going to need to um, pull together additional philanthropic resources because we're not going to be able to support ourselves through what's come our way. And people really stepped up. Um, And we had probably more response to those appeals than we've seen in a very long time. So it it was lovely to see and people continue to be very engaged. Obviously, we worry about what will happen at the end of the year because for some people, they made a contribution now and, and they won't make one later. And so we do rely on the fundraising that we do at the end of the year as what really pushes us through the beginning of the following year. So um, we're, we're keeping our eye on what's going to happen then and making sure that people know that our need is not diminishing. The state is doing, we are continuing to see um, cuts in Medicaid. So there was an across the board cut in Medicaid reimbursement. And that did not apply to some of the services we have we provide because they're, um, they have higher matches with federal dollars. So the state tends not to cut services that have high federal matches. Right. Um, And then we also receive a grant from the state every year from the Department of Health for family planning services. And it helps underwrite the cost of people who need care that I have either no insurance or they're underinsured. And for our patient population, the underinsured piece is really important because it's a lot of folks have high deductible plans. And um, for somebody who's making minimum wage to have a $4,000, $5,000 deductible, that's like not having insurance. Right. You don't, you know, you don't have the money. So the family planning grant that we get from the state helps underwrite that service those are on the chopping block for whatever is going to come. We have to make sure that the state keeps um, some of that, especially for safety net providers like us, that they keep the health care covered. Well, um, 
I, I, we're going to run out of time, and unfortunately, but I, I do know it's okay. We can talk about that. This, this again, this, this is an, an issue that I, I have paid a lot of attention to, so I think it's really important. But I do, in parting, want to ask, I guess, is there anything that you feel like people really need to know? Um, and I know also, you know, you, you, you all were um, sort of outspoken too, as the, we're in a moment of significant tumult and turmoil and discussion about racial inequality and financial inequality. I mean, is there anything that people need to know vis-a-vis Planned Parenthood and that we haven't covered going forward? Well, I think in light of what has been happening around this sort of sudden recognition by parts of the country that systemic racism is real and has been happening, um, typically I would like right now in an interview be like, make sure you donate. Um, right. But honestly, what I'm going to say right now is make sure you vote. Like this can't stand. We can't. We can't. We can't look our brothers and sisters in the eye um, and say that we did everything we could for equality and let this man be president again. So I would say everyone needs to vote and they need to encourage other people to vote and they need to uh, remind people of all of the disparities that exist in our country and that those disparities are denied by the White House. Well, I'm gonna leave it there, but I would hope that you would come back and be with us again, because I think that there are so many issues that we could you know, delve more deeply into, but I do appreciate your time. Thank you so much, Shelley. Thank you so much. Are you looking to reach a diverse audience? Advertise with CivMix today. Visit civmix.com to learn more. Are you ready to rise and shine? Read up on the latest news and happenings taking place in your community each weekday morning on civmix.com. Sign up to receive Rise and Shine in your inbox. Civmix, it's where it's at. Catch new episodes of The Mix each week exclusively on civmix.com. Liz Moran is the Environmental Policy Director for NYPIRG. Liz, how are you? I'm doing good. Good to be chatting with you. Yes, I know. It's, you know, the last time I saw you, we were chatting, oh, like three and a half months ago, four months ago here in Albany before, of course, a, a pandemic and everything else has upended our lives. Yeah. 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 Totally different universe. Yeah. It was we're talking it, about issues that we thought were going to be playing out. It, so it was a sim it was a simpler time. It, it truly was. Yeah. And and now here we are. It's the middle of June. It's starting to get warmer out. And, you know, the biggest thing right now has been, of course, you know, there's a lot of criminal justice reform measures that are being taken up by the legislature. But um, something that, unfortunately, I think, like with every issue um, during this time in terms of things being discussed in Albany have been environmental issues and in your role with Nyberg and then even in your uh, professional career, you've been really at the forefront of advocacy for the environment. Thank you. Yeah. Um, this has been a very interesting time when it comes to environmental issues. A lot of people um, have been talking about the very important connection between uh, the current 
uh, social justice, Black Lives Matter movement that we are seeing along with the climate crisis um, and the importance of fighting for environmental justice. Um, and it's not a coincidence that all of this is coming on the heels of the COVID pandemic. These are all interconnected. Um, it might not be readily obvious to the public why that's the case, um, but it's very clear. So um, Black and Brown communities are the ones that are most adversely impacted by environmental injustice. Uh, these communities are documented to have more polluting facilities in their communities that can lead to adverse health conditions. Um, for example, um, there's a community in the Bronx that actually has some of the highest asthma rates in the country because of its poor air quality. Um, so we're certainly not unique here in New York. This is a big issue for us too. Um, and with the climate crisis, we already know that it's going to be poor and largely minority majority communities that are going to see the brunt of uh, the impacts of climate change. Um, not only that, we already know from data that COVID is impacting black and brown communities far more than other communities. And that's not separate from environmental issues. Uh, these communities also have worse air quality. We know that poor air quality decreases uh, immunofunctions. And that could be a part of the reason why these communities are seeing worse cases of COVID too. So it's all really connected. And this is why as a society, we absolutely have to continue prioritizing environmental issues. So, and I think it's a, it's a good segue here because as we talk about, you know, black and brown communities and particularly as you're mentioning about like the South Bronx, and I, I know with, of course, the, the redevelopment of the Sheridan Expressway to the Sher to Sheridan Boulevard and a lot of these roadway projects that have led to, uh, and there's a correlation obviously between, you know, a higher amount of traffic uh, with a higher uh, chance or probability of residents and individuals there contracting um, air, you know, sort so different sort of air related diseases like asthma and things like that. Now, is the data too early to say that because of the reduced traffic and because of reduced uh, pollutants, because obviously manufacturing has grinded gr gr to a halt and things like that, is there is there still is there data right now that kind of shows that you know there might be at least some re redeeming or um, better word would be not redeeming but uh, yeah I guess a cleaner air quality in, in these times. Yeah, so I imagine a lot of data is still being collected, but we can talk about greenhouse gas emissions. Sure. This is actually well documented because of this global freeze in our lifestyles and a decreased amount of traffic on roads. We have seen greenhouse gas emissions going down. Um, so it, there's a very good chance that other pollutants have gone down during this time as well. We've seen a lot of posts going viral in, in various cities across the country and across the world where air quality is just so much better. Um, skies are literally clearer from the reduced traffic. Water quality in a lot of communities is looking better. Um, the only thing here is with the greenhouse gases, obviously it, the reductions are still not enough uh, to really slow down the rate of global warming. Um, and with the other benefits we're seeing, uh, 
these are great things. Um, people are really celebrating being out the outdoors now. It's one of the few spaces people can feel safe in during this time. Um, but we really need to be implementing policies where we can keep these resources as safe and clean as they are now. It shouldn't take us having to halt our lives for that to happen. Um, it shows that people really appreciate having clean air and water, understandably. Uh, so we need to be doing way more as a society to protect public health um, and protect our environment so we are protecting public health. So as we get to, again, there might be a special session. I know that there's word about legislators coming back in July to take up other issues that were not directly related with COVID in terms of, you know, every other issue under the sun or with criminal justice reform right now. And so what was on uh, your docket of legislative legislative priorities um, for this year? Yeah, so we were fortunate. Um, the state budget that was passed in April uh, did have a lot of strong environmental measures. Of course, we were looking to get a lot more done, but I think it's worth noting that we got a polystyrene ban passed in New York State. Um, industry was trying to use COVID as an excuse for that legislation to not be passed, but it was. Um, we also notably passed an, a new Environmental Bond Act. Um, it's being dubbed as the Restore Mother Nature Bond Act. It will be a $3 billion bond act to be voted on by the public come November. Um, but that being said, we need to be making sure we are pursuing polluters. So a lot of uh, listeners of yours may be aware we are in a major fiscal shortfall because of this pandemic and the state is going to need to do work to generate revenues. Uh, so what better place to look than the polluters, the very reason why we even need a major environmental bond act like this. Um, we need to be more aggressively pursuing climate polluters. Um, so something that the state could do as one example is end fossil fuel subsidies. Why are we still giving subsidies to indus an industry that has made the COVID pandemic worse because of air quality pollution? And of course, has put us in this terrible climate crisis. Um, so that's one thing we would love to see done. Um, we also were very thrilled recently, um, the legislature passed uh, two pieces of legislation uh, that we strongly supported. Um, one is a piece of legislation that will ensure the public have access to critical utilities during the COVID pandemic. So like making sure people still have access to clean water, even if they can't pay their bills. Um, we've been very concerned about water shutoffs. When hand washing is extremely essential to prevent the spread of this disease, you want people to have clean water. So a bill was passed that would make sure people have access to clean water right now. Uh, and another bill that just got passed will ban the burning of the toxic chemicals called PFAS um, in Cohoes, New York. Um, PFAS chemicals called forever chemicals. Um, they do not break down when burned. So that could really jeopardize the health of the communities in that area. Um, so some good things were done. <laughs> um, there's a lot more that could be done, of course, but we have to celebrate the things that they've gone accomplished so far. 
So as we're talking about these different sort of legislative priorities, what, and obviously, you know, even though this year has felt like an eternity, um, you know, there are particular things that your organization has worked on. And I think particularly that's something of interest for our listeners would be, of course, the plastic bag ban. And that's one of the ones that unfortunately due to COVID um, there had been some additional levity, if you will, it's a nice, very nice way of putting, putting it um, changes, right. Uh, that took place in terms of the enforcement. Can you talk a little, a little bit more about that? Yeah, that's a great point. So um, the plastics industry, the fossil fuel industry uh, jumped on the COVID pandemic right away and without any scientific basis, did a very good job of scaring the public, of leveraging elected officials to, in not just New York, but in many states, um, pause the uh, pause the implementation and effectiveness of plastic bag bans. So in New York, we passed this very important plastic bag ban last year. This was the year it was set to go into effect. Um, got delayed in part because of lawsuits, but then a lot of grocery stores that were participating stopped participating in the plastic bag ban um, for fear of uh, spreading the disease via renew reusables. Um, but unfortunately, there's no scientific backing to warrant that change. Um, so now New York State has the opportunity to begin enforcing the plastic bag ban again. Um, they worked with the the courts regarding the lawsuit. Um, so uh, actually, in the next few days, on June 15th, according to the agreement they have, um, the Department of Environmental Conservation has to inform stakeholders, but they can inform them with a 30-day notice that they will begin enforcing. So we're strongly urging the Department of Environmental Conservation to do exactly that, to issue a notice, and then as soon as possible, um, in July, begin enforcing this law because there's no scientific basis for plastic bags being any safer than reusable bags. Um, and we still have to be conscientious of the fact that we're in a plastic pollution crisis. Uh, New York State uh, uses 23 billion plastic bags per year. Uh, Eight million metric tons of plastic waste enters our oceans every single year. Uh, and we also are facing major issues with our recycling infrastructure. Um, so we really need to reduce plastic in the waste stream. So let's see where, I mean, but where do we go from here? Right. So, you know, there are things that we still need to discuss in terms of environmental justice. Um, of course, you know, issues of air quality. I mean, what, what would be your, I know it's very early to say, but, you know, as we're at the end of the traditional legislative session, what, what are your priorities for next year? That's a great question. Um, so we would love to keep building on reducing plastic pollution. Uh, we think it's long overdue that New York State's bottle deposit law or the bottle bill gets expanded to include additional containers. Um, there are other simple uh, plastics that we don't really need in our everyday use, like we should adopt a statewide upon request straw policy. Um, but there's also a lot more we need to be doing to protect water quality. 
Um, I mentioned PFAS chemicals earlier. PFOA um, is probably the most well-known of those chemicals. It polluted the drinking water supplies in Hoosick Falls, in Newburgh. Um, it was polluted by PFOS. Um, this has become a statewide issue. We really need New York State to finalize drinking water standards for those chemicals so we aren't exposed to dangerous levels. Um, and we need the New York State legislature to keep tackling different ways we could be exposed to these chemicals. Um, they passed legislation to ban burning of PFAS in COs, but it should absolutely be a statewide bill. Um, we need to address other chemicals that are similar to PFOA and, and PFOS, uh, other chemicals that are currently unregulated um, and make sure they're tested in our drinking water and we protect public health from them. So there's legislation that would require New York State to establish a list of these unregulated chemicals that could be hazardous to public health and to begin testing statewide for them. Um, so we think that's legislation that should be passed next year. Um, and that and so much more, uh, not necessarily legislative. We need New York State's Climate Action Council to convene again and get New York State rolling so we can meet our ambitious climate goals. Um, so there is a slew of activity we're going to need to see, uh, not just next legislative session, but really as, as soon as possible from our agencies and elected officials. So we're almost out of time, and I want to ask you one last question here. So we talked a lot of things that were happening at the at the state level, but what are you looking at being done at the federal level? And of course, in the last you know three and a half years, and even before that, for different things, there's been a lot of rollback of you know different EPA standards and things like that. Um, so what are things on the federal side that you're looking to accomplish? Yeah, that's a great question. The rollbacks have been absolutely horrible and almost everything I've listed that New York State needs to do is in large part due to all of these rollbacks from the federal government. Um, where I think it would be great for the federal government to do better is regarding the PFAS chemicals I mentioned. Um, they should really be setting a nationwide drinking water standard. Um, but most importantly, they need to let go of all of these rollbacks of the Clean Water Act and the Clean Air Act. The most recent um, uh, regulatory action that the Environmental Protection Agency took was adopting a rule that will prevent states like New York from using the Clean Water Act to stop oil and gas pipelines. This is a really important tool for states to have. States are going to understand their waterways and their wetlands the best. They need to have this tool to be able to protect the water for their residents. And New York State has done so appropriately. The most recent fight we won was New York State said no to the water quality permits for the Williams pipeline, which would have gone through the Hudson River estuary. That was the right move. Um, so we really need EPA to just back off of this and start doing their jobs and putting environment and public health first over that of corporate polluters. Liz Moran, the Environmental Policy Director for NYPIRG. Liz, it's always a pleasure to talk to you, friend. 
Same here, Joe. Thanks so much. Catch new episodes of The Mix each week exclusively on civmix.com.